Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Owen Jones, and you're listening to the Cheerful Election Daily. Do you remember when the most exciting thing happening in politics was how Ed Miliband ate a bacon sandwich? Now when I get news alerts on my phone, I adopt the brace position. I remember when I was a teenager, I I, I studied history because I thought in the late 90s, things are so boring and dull and look at all these incredible tumultuous events happening in history. And then you live through chaos and turmoil and you think, oh my word, this is absolutely shattering. We are in the run-up now, less than four weeks away from the most dramatic election of our time. I know they always say that, but this one really is. It is a fork-in-the-road election, which um, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say will determine the future of this country for a generation or more, potentially. No pressure, guys. Now, what I'm going to do in this podcast is I'm going to tell you what's really happening behind the scenes. I'm going to talk about the policies. I'm going to break them down. Uh, I'm going to talk about what's happening on the ground. I'm going to talk to people involved at various different levels. I'm going to pass on what I'm actually hearing from people who aren't sad, pathetic Politico geeks like myself. Uh, And what I'm going to try and do through this podcast is chart what is going to be a very, very dramatic few weeks indeed. So I'm going to start with an added note. I cycled this week from Islington to Croydon Central, because that is how hardcore I am. Now, Croydon Central was a seat which the Labour Party, Sarah Jones, the candidate, won from the Tories back in 2017. Very dramatic. Uh, So it was won from Gavin Barwell, who was the Tory housing minister, then ended up as Theresa May's chief of staff. A real uh, litany of political successes for him to put on his... CV. And she won it by over 5,000 vote majority. So it was a biggie. That was a kind of moment when Tory advisors looked at it and saw the words Labour gain and felt pretty nauseous back in the early hours of June the 9th, 2017. I remember going there the night before the polling day. And I remember seeing all these all these, uh, these youngins uh, in their early 20s and the late teens who'd never knocked on a door before. Now, I remember being a teenager um, which was a while ago, even though I looked like Macaulay Culkin and Home Alone. And they were kind of eccentric if you were young, often, just to be kind and interested in politics. But I remember the night before the election in Croydon Central, and these were young, cool kids. You know, these were people who were into music and fashion, uh, you know, unlike me, who was once named by GQ as the ninth worst dressed man in Britain. Um, and... They, you know, they, they, they weren't people ordinarily who'd ever dream of doing something like that. And they turned the tide and played an absolute critical role in what happened in seats like Croydon Central. So I went back there and it was nippy. I forgot my scarf, which was a low point. It was raining. And again, there were lots of people there who never knocked on the door before. But I'll give you just a couple of anecdotes. 
So there was one door I opened and a middle-aged black woman with a slight patchwork accent instantly was like, no, 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 I'm a Brexiteer. I'm voting for the Conservatives. Now, she uh, she voted Labour last time and uh, she spoke to me about how uh, she's a receptionist and she was angry about Eastern European migrants. She's also on universal credit and that's driven it into debt. She said she's had to use her credit card for the first time in her life. Now, actually, having afterwards spoke to Sarah Jones, who's a brilliant local MP, uh, really known for going hard on knife crime, she changed her mind. But another, I'll give you another one. Uh, another woman I spoke to, uh, she was a nurse and she was fed up, really actually quite exhausted. I think she said exhausted about Brexit. And it had sucked the trust and faith out of all politics and all politicians. Now, she said in the end she'd vote Labour. What am I trying to say with these anecdotes? Politics is really quite complicated. And actually, what you hear at the national level about swings here, swings there, who's likely to vote this way, who's likely to vote that way. You know, when you're on the doorstep sometimes chatting to people, whether it be, I don't know, the voter's going to go for the Lib Dems and as an ardent Brexiteer, uh, as as one example I met in uh, in Somerset, Northwest, which is, uh, or Northeast, sorry, which is Jacob Rees-Mogsey. You know, whether it be uh, someone who is voted for UKIP last time and now they're in the Labour fold, or now they've gone to the Brexit party, things are really complicated. And this is going to be a struggle, an epic struggle that won't just be raged region to region, constituency to constituency, but household to household. Now, let's just look at where we are. Let's do some scene setting. The polling for Labour, if you're going to be really depressed, is not good. And it varies quite widely. So if you were going to look at YouGov, then you'd probably need a stiff drink if you're a Labour supporter, a 14-point lead for the Tories. If you were to look at Servation, which did get the last uh, election result, uh, the closest of any pollster, then actually it's narrowed to a six-point lead for the Tories. But it's still a biggie. Now, in terms of where we were last time in the last election... The Tories started way ahead. They were 24 points ahead. Theresa May uh, had, uh, in terms of who would you prefer to be prime minister, she was uh, well over 50%. Jeremy Corbyn languished in the teens. Theresa May was more popular than Thatcher and Blair in their pomp. Do you remember those campaign buses they had where they airbrushed out Tory and they just had Theresa May because that's how popular she was and she was seen as particularly popular in the Midlands and the North and the Tories were just going to steamroller through Labour constituencies that had never voted that way before. Now, obviously, it did not pan out that way. And Labour went from about 24 points when the election started, the campaign, to 40 points, just two points behind the Tories. Now, the gap that exists this time, and it is a biggie, is not nearly as big as it was last time. And Boris Johnson is way less popular. But Jeremy Corbyn's ratings are back to where they were, very unpopular at the last time. uh, And the polling is a mountain to climb and, you know, just hoping 2017 can repeat itself is is not uh, a strategy. But it can happen. It can turn around. Now, let's just think about the odds stacked on the Tory side. Money, for a start. They're getting bankrolled by some pretty minted people. Various points, over half their funds have come from the City of London. We're thinking about hedge fund managers and financiers and tycoons and magnates and all the rest. 
almost all the press are on their side. Nigel Farage has basically done a de facto pact, withdrawing the Brexit party from Tory-held seats. And the Remain side has fragmented. This country is in the grip of a huge culture war, which is what Brexit has become. And the mood for compromise, which did exist for a while after the referendum, has completely dissipated. Uh, For a lot of people who voted leave, they want a proper leave, uh, as they see it. uh, And that's debatable, where people like myself would debate it. But a hard Brexit has become a very mainstream option. For Remainers, uh, for those who thought, "Ah, I didn't like the referendum result, but I want to make it work. uh, Now there's a, a, a more of a sense of, I hate all of this, and we need to just get rid of it altogether. So Labour's attempt to straddle that divide, and we can debate about how well it's been communicated, but to say it was a close referendum result, so let's leave but have a close relationship and go back to talking about things we really care about. That is dead, it died. And Labour have been forced to pivot to offer, in my opinion, rightly, and they should have done it sooner and all the rest, but remain uh, on the ballot paper in a referendum against any possible deal. But at the moment, what's happened is... Whilst the Tories have recouped a lot of the lost voters they had on the Leave side who went to the Brexit party, a lot of people on the Remainer side from Labour have gone. And at the same time, in some of their northern and midland seats, they've lost some of their Leave-leaning supporters as well. Now, the polling since the election started has shown Labour going up, actually at a faster rate than last time. But it's still a huge challenge. So what have Labour got on their side? Let's consider we've seen the Tory advantages. What do Labour have on their side? So they've got a mass membership. They've got one of the biggest uh, memberships of any political party in the Western world. And they do these mass canvases. And honestly, if you see them, if you actually go out to some of these marginals, you've got these masses of people. You think, what is this? Is this a protest? Is this a rally? There's actually people who are sacrificing what are quite cold and dark evenings now and sometimes, as I can testify, pretty soggy, to knock on doors and actually try and win people over. And the other thing that Labour have on their side is this very, very strong and profound belief that a political consensus, which was established over a generation ago by Margaret Thatcher, which was, you let the market rip, you roll back the state, you privatise, you deregulate, you basically have a kind of market fundamentalist approach that consensus has collapsed. It doesn't have popular acquiescence. So if you, it was never something that people embraced, but people thought there was no alternative. So when Labour offered last time, when they said, actually, instead of constantly cutting taxes on the rich, increase them and on big business and invest it in services or scrap tuition fees and fund education through progressive taxation or bring utilities like rail and water away from profiteering companies and under the public ownership of the people of this country, those were very, very popular. In fact, popular, according to the polling, amongst many people are actually voting for the Conservatives, let alone the Labour Party. But they've got a massive, massive mountain. And the mountain, it goes something like this. That poll by Servation finds that just 45% of people aged 18 to 34 are certain, are certain to vote. And they are the most pro-Labour age demographic. But over 81% of people over the age of 65 say that they're going to vote. Now, they lean very strongly towards the Conservatives, and there's never been such a divide in the generations. Margaret Thatcher in 1983 had a pretty whopping lead amongst 18 to 24-year-olds. 
Now, in terms of money, according to Servation, less than half of those earning under £20,000 are certain to vote. But for those earning more than 40 grand a year, it's 77%. And again, there's a divide there. The poorer you are, the more likely you are to vote Labour. The richer you are, the more likely you are to go for the Tories. So in terms of the polling, and you'll see wild different polling. And on election day in 2017, you had some polling showing Labour were 13 points behind and others showing about two points behind, which is what actually happened. And the reason for that is pollsters wait what they're polling by how likely people are to turn out. So Labour's massive, massive challenge is to try and mobilise those people, poorer and younger people, before it's too late. And that, in terms of the campaign, in terms of the policies and all the rest of it, is where, they're, where they've got to go. Now, last time, the big turning point in the campaign was when Labour had his manifesto. I don't know if you remember that, it got leaked. And basically, anyone who works for the Labour leadership at the time, the colour visibly drained from their faces. Uh, They were, honestly, at the time, it felt like the whole thing had just collapsed. Uh, You know, they they all had BBC and ITV reporters ringing and going, hey, um, so we've, we've just actually had the entire manifesto emailed to us. But actually what happened, and now in hindsight, if you talk to those Labour people, they go, whoever leaks that manifesto, I want to give them a hug. Because the manifesto was splashed on the front pages of newspapers going, oh my word, that bloody commie Jeremy Corbyn wants to renationalise the railways. But people looked at that and thought, oh, great idea. And actually it just meant there was more and more publicity about the manifesto than there would have been. So this time round with the manifesto, what Labour are hoping is it will refocus the debate on their domestic policies that are really popular, uh, objectively, away from a focus exclusively on Brexit, which is something which obviously has hugely polarised and divided the whole nation. One of the worries is to go, well, last time there was a big bang because this was all new and will they get the same big bang again? But it is interesting that the polling is already going up for Labour, I know, from a low base, but that has got to be the hope. So on Saturday, there's a something called a Clause 5 meeting. That's when all the Labour stakeholders, unions, MPs, councillors and so on, come together to agree on key policies. And then next week, at some point, that manifesto will be launched. Now, here's another interesting little tidbit. There were rumours that Boris Johnson was going to do a chicken run from his constituency of Uxbridge and South Rislip. And the reason for that is in 2015, he got a majority of over 10,500. You'd think, well, he's fine. Uh, I mean, it would be pretty catastrophic to lose that. But two years later, in 2017, it more than halved to 5,000. So there's been all sorts of rumours about... Uh, Boris Johnson going to a, I don't know, 25,000 Tory seat called something with Shire in it, shotgun on the Heath or whatever. Um, But he hasn't done that. However, there's an interesting press release that's come out from something called Who Targets Me? And it's entitled Tories Fear Johnson Will Lose Seat Online Ad Spend Suggests. And what that shows is that spending on targeted online adverts in his constituency shows that they are worried. They spent over 2,300 quid on Snapchat adverts, for example, uh, also over £6,000 there on Facebook adverts, which have been displayed over £700,000. So it's very targeted. And one of the reasons they're also worried is the Labour candidate, 
is a absolute campaign powerhouse. He's like Boris Johnson's opposite. He's working class, partly grew up in benefits. Uh, he's called Ali Milani. Uh, he comes from a migrant family. And he is uh, absolutely, you know, he's got hundreds of people flooding in the constituencies to support him. Now, obviously, it would be the biggest, one of the biggest upsets in the history of democracy. Uh, no prime minister has ever lost their seat in any election so he hasn't had his chicken run, but if it all goes pretty badly for the Tories, then imagine that moment, Boris Johnson, Tory Prime Minister, all of a sudden standing there on a podium, the blood drained from his face as you hear those magical words, Uxbridge and Southwise lip, Labour game. Now, when the Tories kicked this off, they thought this will just be about Brexit. That's all it will be, nothing else. Now, the problem is when you launch an election and you just think you can determine the narrative, events will suddenly blow that pretty dramatically, of course. And one example this week has been the NHS crisis. Now, the Tories did this big thing on Thursday, which was typical migrant bashing, migrant scapegoating, which was to scaremonger about the number of migrants that would enter the country under Labour. It's pretty grim stuff, I'm not going to lie. You know, I mean, the oldest trick in the book is to blame migrants for all the problems caused by the powerful, whether it be the lack of council housing, because the government's not building it, whether it be uh, the lack of secure, skilled jobs, because industries got ripped away, whether it be declining wages, stagnating wages because of austerity. All of these things are blamed on migrants and foreigners. You know, the NHS that we have would collapse overnight without foreign-born doctors and nurses, uh, we know that migrants pay in more than they get back. Would they enrich our culture, though? It shouldn't just be about money. I mean, you know, they're our friends, they're our neighbours, they're our lovers. They hugely enrich our society and our, and, our, and our culture. But you kind of ask yourself, why are they just kicking off about migrants all of a sudden? And it turns out that on the same day, figures about NHS accident emergency figures showed the worst target performance ever. So the target is 95% of patients seen within four hours. That now is a terrible, dire 83.6% in October. And the last time the standard was met was July 2015. So it's the worst ever in history. Now we've got hospitals uh, running, uh, the number of hospitals running short on nurses has tripled in five years. According to NHS providers, if we were going to carry on on current trends, the NHS would have a shortfall of 108,000 full-time equivalent nurses. That is absolutely ridiculous. And the Tories cut nurses' bursaries. We've got a lack of doctors. 15,000 beds, whoosh, gone. We've had cuts to public health, which is really silly because that's supposed to be about preventative, about stopping health crises, which then cost money. Uh, we've seen mental health beds in free fall. And we've seen life expectancy increases suddenly stagnating. So the NHS is in a whopping big crisis. John Major himself, a Tory prime minister, once declared that the NHS was as safe with Boris Johnson and Michael Gove as a pet hamster would be with a hungry python. And Farage, who has done this pact, of course, with the government, is on record supporting its privatisation. So one of Labour's big uh, lines is in a Brexit trade deal with Trump, the NHS is going to be on the table, which is what Trump himself said, incidentally. But this is interesting because the, the Tories want to go big on this. And I guess the question is, it's like an arsonist saying, I'm the best person to 
to put out the fires enveloping this house that I myself started. Now, Labour talking about £26 billion health boost, mass recruiting of staff, huge repair programme, free prescriptions and training more GPs. And I think those are the sorts of ambitious policies this election has to be about because the NHS is one of our proudest institutions. It's been you know, suffering more and more privatisation, the worst squeeze in its funding uh, since it was founded. And if... If, if the Tories want to make it about the NHS, then fine. Let's have that as the one of the big debates. But look at this crisis. I mean, you've got old people lying on trolleys, abandoned. You have to ask. This is one of the wealthiest countries that has ever existed. How did it come to this? Now, I'm not going to lie. This next policy, which Labour are announcing today, I am... Honestly, fanboying over this in quite a big way. I, I think one of my uh, one of my favourite policies. This is my my one of my friends always goes on about this. Ellie Mohagen, the the writer, was to have free Wi Fi on all trains uh, under a Labour government. But this is a biggie, which is that Labour are now saying that they're going to deliver full fibre broadband for everybody. Uh, and that will be done by bringing parts of BT into public ownership and having a new British broadband public service. Uh, there'd be a huge upgrade in the internet infrastructure uh, because at the moment, obviously, if you're out and about, what's happening with your mates, trying to send some pictures of them drunkenly embarrassing themselves the night before, you don't have fast, secure, secure reliable internet connections. And you've got to embarrass your, you know, your mates promptly in, in many set cases. So the idea is to boost 5G connectivity and it would it would be paid for by taxing multinational corporations like Amazon, like Facebook and Google, which are absolutely loaded and frankly currently taking the mick. Uh, and it would save the average person over 30 quid a month. Now, this is big. If we just as an example, I, I find this astonishing. So in Japan and South Korea, about 97, 98% of all of their premises have full fiber broadband. Guess what it is in Britain? It's not 50, it's not 40, it's not 30, it's not 20, it's between 8 and 10%. That's your lot. 80% of us uh, have internet reliability problems in just the last year alone. Now, there's obviously, if you think about it, it's good for the economy. Um, and what Labour is saying is it boosts productivity by 59 billion quid by 2025. It'd bring half a million people into the workforce. And for rural economies, which often get abandoned, it would give them a boost, uh, allowing over a quarter of a million more people to move to rural areas. I think this is big. I mean, I look this up, I find this kind of these statistics unbelievable that 34 countries have better broadband speeds than us uh, that's most of europe we're behind romania and madagascar not a dig at them wonderful countries but a lot poorer than us uh, and, and london's got some of the worst broadband in britain and we've got broadband that's too slow in more than a quarter of homes so if you're going to watch a movie for example in britain it takes over 36 minutes to download a five gigabyte hd movie uh, in Singapore, that's 11 minutes, 80 seconds. So if you want to, you know, snuggle up with your partner, you're going to have to spend a lot more time canoodling whilst you're waiting for that for that download, which could be good. But sometimes you just want to watch Succession, even though most of the characters are unbearably evil. It took me a while to get into Succession, I'm not going to lie. 
Um, I got pilloried for saying this in, on social media that I just found them, un- but I've got into it now. Anyway, I can now find them unbearable, but strangely enjoyable, much quicker if we have this broadband service. Now, why do I think this is important? I think it's a statement of kind of what kind of society we could build where instead of profit, uh, which is what British telecom is fueled by, that's its whole purpose, uh, being dominant kind of force in society, the needs of all of us take priority. So should property rights or the need of, needs of society and humanity, which should, which should uh, come top? And I think that should be a theme they should build on, that actually, uh, rather than allowing profiteering companies to hold us back and hold back our potential, I mean, this is one of the wealthiest countries that has ever existed, we, we can actually we have the resources already to do all of these things. Other countries have done them, as we've seen. They've managed to do it. Why not us? Why isn't, well, you know, this is a, a country which its people surely deserves the best, uh, you know, the, the hard graft, the hard work every day that creates this huge amount of wealth that ends up often in the pockets of a tiny elite. But actually we could use that wealth collectively to build a better society where we can get, yes, very, very good broadband, uh, and I mean, this is the sort of policy that I think actually has, it has cut through more of this labor, be imaginative, be bold. They're going to have to be more than last time because at the moment they need a kind of big bang. They need things to infuse people. They need people who are jaded and bored about Brexit and politics and cynical and all the rest. They want them to sit up and go, wow, this is new. This is different. You know, this makes me want to not just vote against the Tories, it makes me want to vote for Labour. So we've got over three weeks to go. It's going to be quite the slog, but it is going to be exciting. And what we've got next week is we've got the big leaders debates. Now, this is going to be the huge clash between Boris Johnson and Jamie Corbyn. Now, sure, we'll hear a lot about Jamie Corbyn's bad personal ratings. But what happened last time was the more people saw him, uh, because broadcasting rules kick in during an election, which guarantee fair access to the opposition that they're otherwise denied. When Labour's popular domestic policies are front and centre, when you get mass membership knocking on doors, when social uh, media videos, which bypass a hostile press, when they go viral, then the more they like Jamie Corbyn and the more they like the Labour Party. Now, is history guaranteed to repeat itself? Well, obviously not. But that is the seeds of hope that exist for Labour when the odds are stacked against them. That when you get a a contrast between someone like Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, who even his close supporters would say is the sort of guy you might expect to sell his own mum on eBay if they thought he'd advance his political career, who's been sacked twice for dishonesty, that contrast can actually be very clear to people, not least in a TV debate. So... We're going to go on this journey together next week. We've got the debates. I'm going to be touring across the country. I'm going to the leave areas of the Midlands this Saturday, where the picture is going to be pretty different from some of the Romania areas that I've been to, for example, in Canterbury. But I want you to get in touch with me on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. I want to hear the things you think I should be talking about. But let's go on this journey with some optimism and hope. Nothing is inevitable. And actually, I think most people have, or or millions of people certainly, have turned away from years of austerity and cuts and want something new and fresh. 
it's not going to be easy to get there and it's going to need a lot of commitment and optimism and hope and determination. Labour are going to make mistakes, as they already have, but I think, even though the vested interests and the press are already decided what the result can be, I think there's potential for an upset, but only if people want it enough. I will see you next time. Or speak to you, at least. Lots of love, everyone. Election Daily is produced by the cheerful team, including Jeff Lloyd, Emma Corsham, Joe Kenyon and Joel Pearce, with music from Pete Frazier. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.